Almighty Father, we thank you that you are a wonderful God, a God who speaks to us, a God who knows us. And as we look at your word this evening, I pray that you take my clumsy thoughts and words and use them to speak of your truth. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So uh, let me add my welcome again to Tom's. I won't go through what I do again, but for those perhaps that are listening, uh, you may be wondering why I've been asked to talk on this question of am I just my brain? And uh, my day job is as a neurologist, uh, so looking after people with uh, diseases of the brain and spinal cord and nerves, and I guess that's why Tom thought I might have something to say on this subject. Um, I think some of, the, some of the sort of idea for this talk came from this book, Am I Just My Brain, uh, by Sharon Durex. Um, it's a really helpful book just to talk you through a little bit about uh, neuroscience and what scientists are saying about the function of the brain and what it means for us. It's, it's a pretty easy read. I would say you do need to give it a bit of thought, but it's very readable. Um, so if you're interested in what we're talking about tonight, um, do take, uh, take, uh, go and get a copy um, and, uh, and have a read of it. Um, you'll see that some of the stuff that I have used is from there. So just in case there is any doubt, let me state very clearly that the brain is the most important organ in the human body. Uh, as one of my colleagues will happily tell you, every other organ in the body serves to create and maintain an environment for the, bod- uh, for the brain to function to its full potential. Uh, now, I can see some of the other doctors in the room are already thinking that a view is absolutely typical of neurologists, sitting in their ivory towers, stroking their chins, uh, and actually never curing anyone. But I think it's, it's fair to say that the brain is a wonderful thing. And if you just glimpse something of its beauty and its complexity, you cannot fail to marvel at its capabilities. So the average adult brain weighs a little under one and a half kilos, Uh, It's made up of about 100 billion brain cells, and each one of those brain cells has somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 connections. So you literally have trillions of connections within your brain. Your brain only weighs about 2% of your body mass, and yet it uses 20% of its energy. And each day, each individual brain, so MJ's brain, will have, uh, create more electrical impulses than all of the telephones in the world. So with the hopeful expectation that this won't go horribly wrong, I'm going to try and demonstrate to you how amazing the brain is. Now, I have tried this at home, and it worked, uh, so hopefully it will work uh, now. So uh, unlike in class, where you have to put your hand up and answer the question, I want you to try and answer the question I'm going to pose you uh, as quickly as you can. So just shout out the answer. And as soon as someone gets the right answer, I will let you know. So I'm going to show you a picture. So if you can't, if you're over the edges, you want to squeeze in. And I want you to tell me what this picture is. Okay, so you ready? On your marks, set, go. Sorry? Yeah, Eiffel Tower, John Fenton. A little under five seconds. So for those that can't see the image, this is a picture of the Eiffel Tower taken from underneath the Eiffel Tower because if you're standing right at its very base, in between the four legs, looking up to the sky. Okay? So, that is amazing. And John Fenton got that answer in about four seconds. We do that all of the time, every day. But have you thought about how you actually know that that is the Eiffel Tower? So, as I got you to look at that picture, light reflected off the picture and uh, went to the back of your eyes, to the retina. 
And at the back of your eyes, you've got very specialist cells. You've got rods and cones, and it's the cones that are really interested in detail and colour. And those different cones will respond to different wavelengths of light. So some are particularly good at some colours, others at different colours. So as, those, as that light was flooding into your eye, it was hitting the back of your uh, retina, and your brain was already thinking, I need to focus on this picture. So rather than just looking randomly, um, it's allowing that image to hit the very centre of the retina, and it's making tiny little movements, trying to scan the picture for information that is going to allow you to identify it. So as that light uh, is absorbed by the retina, electri- uh, little chemical reactions are going to start, an electrical current is going to be generated, and that's going to be passed from one cell to another, back towards the optic nerve that runs from your eye back towards your brain. Now, your left optic nerve from your left eye is going to meet the same optic nerve, the right optic nerve, from the right eye, and they're going to join together. Then they're going to split the image. So everything on the left side of the picture is going to go to the right side of your brain, and everything on the right side of the picture is going to the left side of your brain, and that's good. So that if you get a javelin in the eye or a spear when you're hunting bison, uh, you can still see the whole world as long as you've got one eye. Um, Those electrical impulses are now travelling back to the very back of the eye, to the occipital lobes, and it's here that those electrical impulses are going to create what we see as a picture. And that's why if you have a stroke or some other damage to your brain, you may not be able to see things in front of you, even though your eye works perfectly normally. Or if you've got a dementia, you may be able to see something but not recognise what it is, even though the eyes are working perfectly well. So as those images get to the back of the brain, it creates an image, and we see this picture here. But that's only half the story, because what I asked you to do was tell me what it was. And what it is is the Eiffel Tower. Now, for those of you that have seen the Eiffel Tower or know what it is, that information is stored in your temporal lobe, and for most of you, that's your left temporal lobe. So now, these image pictures have got to travel forward in the brain to the left-hand side and be compared to all of those other images you have in your brain of everything else that you've seen uh, in the world. Now, your brain's going to do a very good job of working out roughly what it is and probably comparing it to other things in that category. And to make it more difficult, I showed you a picture not of the Eiffel Tower as it normally is, but from a very odd view. So in those seconds, the brain is is, is comparing what you're seeing with all of those other images and trying to work out what it is until you make the match and feel confident that you know what it is. But then you've got to say the words Eiffel Tower, and to do that, your brain needs to pick out the sounds that will produce the phrase Eiffel Tower. So it gets all of those little sound fragments, it puts them in the right order, and then it sends those impulses to the front of your brain, to the frontal lobes, because that is where the brain controls the muscles in your jaws, and your tongue, and your lips, and your palate, and your vocal cords. And from there, those messages are going to go down through the brain, out into the nerves, to the muscles. As the nerve gets to the muscle, it's going to release a little chemical, and then those muscles are going to contract in just the right way, in the right order, to produce the phrase Eiffel Tower. Isn't that amazing? The brain is an amazing thing. And John Fenton did that in about three or four seconds. I'm sorry, not all of you could see uh, perhaps what it was. So Michio Kaku, the US theoretical physicist, said, the most complex object in the known universe, the brain, only uses 20 watts of power. It would require a nuclear power plant to energize a computer the size of a city block to mimic your brain. And your brain does that with just 20 watts. 
But what about all of those other things that perhaps were going on that we haven't yet acknowledged? For the competitive amongst you, perhaps you were energised by the thought of the competition, the opportunity to demonstrate your superiority over those around you. Did some of you have uh, doubts? You thought it was the Eiffel Tower, but you didn't want to shout out in case you were wrong. You were dragged back to a moment in school where you said something foolish and you were ridiculed by those around you. For a second, perhaps that entire painful moment felt as real as it did on that day. Or for the romantics, did you think of Paris and did that whisk you away to a time when you walked hand in hand with the love of your life? And to paraphrase F. Scott Fitzgerald, you loved them and it was the beginning of everything. (laughs) Not many takers for that, maybe. So why do we think such thoughts? What does it mean to be me and what does it mean to be you? Traditionally, we have ascribed such thoughts to our mind, and the Oxford English Dictionary defines the mind as the seat of awareness, thought, volition, feeling, and memory. But Francis Crick was one of the scientists who co-discovered DNA, uh, for which he won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. And this is what he thought you or me uh, were, or is, uh, or are. You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are in fact no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. I wonder how close such a description is to how you view what it means to be you. I recall meeting a man in clinic uh, during my training. He was an old man. He was in his 70s. He had white hair. Uh, He was very much the picture of a lovable uh, grandfather. He came in, he cracked jokes, he entertained us all, and for me, it was a pleasurable experience. Now, the clinic was a dementia clinic, and uh, generally what we do in those clinics is, once we've spoken to the patient, um, we ask them if they wouldn't mind sitting outside. And it gives the family an opportunity to perhaps share things that they're worried about that they don't want to say in front of their loved one. He happily obliged and left us alone with his two daughters, Well, when we were alone with his uh, daughters, one of them began to speak before she was overcome with tears. I find this so hard, she said. Everyone who meets him now thinks he is such a nice man, but he isn't. This is not him. She went on to share with us uh, to say that he was an abusive and violent man who used to hit their mother. She hated him, and now she had to reconcile her lifetime experience of who she thought he was with the man he had seemingly become. He was suffering with, suffering with a type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia, which, as the name suggests, uh, particularly affects the frontal lobes in the brain. And their function is closely correlated with our behaviour uh, and our personality. And so, in turn, as they become dysfunctional, it can have radical effects on the way we behave and who we appear to be, for better or for worse. To me, superficially at least, he was a nice old man, but to his daughter, he was a man of violence. But which man was he? His daughter, it was clear that he was the former, and imagine we may be inclined to believe uh, the same, given that his new behaviour seemed to be the result of a disease process. But implicit in such a conclusion, I think, is a sense that we are responsible for our actions, that we have a degree of free will. Some behaviour is right, some behaviour is wrong, and we are expected to choose good over bad. Our whole society is predicated on such a notion, from the rule of law to how we raise our children to what we expect of one another. 
but many scientists are beginning to argue differently. The atheist neuroscientist Sam Harris is a so-called hard determinist. So he believes that our behaviours are determined by hard factors that cannot be influenced. So you may believe you have some influence over these factors, but this is merely an illusion or delusion. We are just our brains and nothing more. And in his book, Free Will, he speaks of the implications of such a view by recounting a robbery in Connecticut uh, that went wrong and ended up with four people uh, from within a family being murdered. He writes, As sickening as I find their behaviour, I have to admit that if I were to trade places with one of those men, atom for atom, I would be him. That is, if I had his genes and life experience and an identical brain, and he says brackets or soul, in an identical state, I would have acted exactly as he did. There is simply no intellectual position from which to deny this. He goes on to say, how can we make sense of our lives and hold people accountable for their choices given the unconscious origin of our conscious minds? Free will is an illusion. We do not have the freedom we think we have. Now, in one sense, I admire Sam Harris as he is prepared, in part, to accept the consequences of what he believes to be true. But I wonder whether we feel comfortable with that conclusion. Is such a view consistent with your worldview? Sam Harris would argue that rather uh, feeling anger at the injustices that we see around us and holding the perpetrators to account, we must learn to accept that there is no right or wrong, just nature doing what comes naturally to it. The murderer is pro programmed to murder. The adulterer is programmed to be unfaithful. The religious uh, are programmed to believe in God. The atheists to reject God. But the real fallacy of such a position of hard determinism is that it removes the possibility of personal beliefs. So if Sam Harris is correct up to a point in his argument, then he simply thinks what he's programmed to believe, whether it's true or not. He cannot know for certain that any conclusion he reaches is rational. Now, wonderful as it is to be able to recognise the Eiffel Tower from unusual perspectives, it is an easy question. We know how that works. But whether we have any responsibility for our actions and what it means to be us, well, those are hard questions. And many scientists believe that science cannot answer these questions. Science may be good at the how, but not the why. And so if science can't answer these questions, where are we to look for the answers. Uh, and we're going to look at Psalm 139, amongst others, to see what that tells us. Now, some of these views that we've outlined are predicated on the views of evolutionary biology. Put simply, the biologists would tell us that you and I are the products of millions of years of evolution. So we're really the, the refined product of those traits that allowed our ancestors to successfully uh, live long enough so that they could reproduce. Nine months before we appear on Earth, one sperm from a couple of hundred million to choose from will unite with one female egg chosen from about 300,000 viable options. Each potential sperm-egg combination is unique, and therefore the possibility uh, runs into the trillions. All of these combinations, governed by a myriad of, myriad of factors, some known, some unknown, uh, alongside what appears to be pure chance. This view concludes that the outcome is just another child on the conveyor belt of life, some well-suited to survival, some not. As Carl Sagan, the US astrophysicist, said, the universe is neither benign nor hostile, 
simply indifferent. The psalmist argues we are made purposefully. This is a psalm of David, and he begs to differ differently, that we are made purposely. We are not the product of a blind, indifferent biological process, but rather God has made uh, made each and every one of us intentionally. Look at verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Uh, Verse 15. Uh, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Before the positive pregnancy test, the first ultrasound scan, God sees our unformed substance as he makes us. Each and every one of us, whether humanly planned or unplanned, wanted or unwanted, healthy or sick, is made by God himself. And as we read at the beginning of our time together, not only were we created by God, but we were created in his image. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. Unlike the rest of life on this planet, we bear an image not only of our earthly parents, but also our Heavenly Father. So regardless of how the world may view us, we are someone, someone that David describes his soul to know as wonderful. Uh, That word soul is from uh, verse 14. Uh, The NIV has it as, I know that full well. Uh, But the ESV uh, and other translations use this word nefesh. My soul knows it to be true. Secondly, we're made for a purpose. So if the psalmist is correct and we're made on purpose, how will that change the way we live our lives? So I'm going to suggest there are three obvious uh, consequences from our psalm. Firstly, alongside the psalmist's understanding that he's been created is a knowledge of the creator himself. In addition to knowing that God is a creator, earlier in the psalm, David has described at length that he is also all-knowing. God knows everything about David. When he sits, when he stands, stands, what he says before he even says it. Verse 6 suggests it sort of blows his mind. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He goes on in verses 7 to 12 to say that his presence is everywhere. And as David considers all of these things, it inevitably leads him to praising God. Verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. Secondly, David speaks of a personal relationship with God. We've seen that David is convinced that God's presence is with him always, uh, in verse 7. Despite his apparent best efforts, there is nowhere he can escape from him. Verse 8 even suggests that perhaps he can't even escape in death. So that word depth uh, is originally sheol, Uh, which is where dead souls went to reside after they died. But even there, God is with him. And not only is God present, but God guides him and holds him fast. In verse 10, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And at the end of the psalm, he asks God to search his heart, again hinting that this life is not all that there is, as he asks God to lead him in the way everlasting. This isn't a picture of a detached creator watching his creation from afar, having set the ball rolling. It's the picture of a God who offers a real and meaningful relationship with him. 
Lastly, God has a specific purpose for all of our lives. In verse 16, David says, Your uh, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. More than just a knowledge of what's to come, it says that the days are ordained. They are days with a purpose. And again, David rejects the materialist view that life has no meaningful purpose beyond survival and reproduction. Instead, our lives are full of meaning, a meaning given by God in accordance with his purposes. And while some purposes may be common to all humans, David seems to state here that before we're even born, before our brains have formed, before we can speak or seemingly think for ourselves, God has ordained every one of our days. As part of my job, I regularly have to tell patients and their families that they're suffering from diseases for which I have no cure, nothing that will slow down the disease or stop it, and ultimately that's going to lead to death and disability. Now, I don't for a moment want to make light of such a diagnosis and the pain attached to it, but as I tell patients I'm sorry, I've been struck by so many patients who remark that they're grateful for some certainty. The challenges and the sadness remain, but they're not knowing can often be worse. So how wonderful then for David and for us that whatever we face, the God who made us and who knows us and knows all that is to come will never leave us. So as we finish, even if you've never asked yourself, am I just my brain? I suspect you have asked some similar questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What will happen to me when I die? If the atheist scientist is right, these are meaningless questions. In Stephen Hawking's words, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Stephen Hawking, uh, living with motor neuron disease, perhaps knew better than most that his computer was failing. His response, I believe, though, gets to the heart of our question, To conclude that we are just our brain is really to reject God. It is to deny that we're created and therefore to deny the creator himself and to reject his will for our lives. It's the same error that Adam made in the Garden of Eden, rejecting that as his creator, God should, uh, although God loved him, um, he didn't know what was best for him. Sadly, the consequence of his choice was ultimately death. And the Bible makes it clear that death is not the peaceful oblivion Stephen Hawking proposes. We haven't touched in detail on those last few verses of our psalm, which seem rather in contrast uh, to the rest of the psalm. But they make clear that to be an enemy of God is to face the terrible punishment that we deserve. And it was the same question facing those thieves that we read about uh, in Luke 23 as they were crucified next to Jesus. One would reject him, even as he faced death, but for the other, he saw his choice with perfect clarity. And instead of rejecting God, he chose to submit to him as Lord. How sweet Jesus' response must have been as he hung, dying on that cross. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Later that day, the thieves' legs would be broken to hasten his death, so that his dead body could be laid in its tomb. And yet Jesus promised him that as his body lay in that tomb, he, the thief, was in paradise with Jesus.
Stephen Hawking and others tell us that such promises are fairy tales and delusions. So how can we be sure? Well, we can be sure because the man who made that promise, Jesus, was the very one who had created the thief, the one who had been there at the beginning, the one who knew the thief better than he knew himself. And we can have confidence in his promise because he was both a real man and God himself who walked this earth and whose life is a matter of historical record. And having died alongside that thief on the cross, he rose again to declare that through his sacrifice, death had been defeated, and for those who would believe in him, they may not die, but have eternal life. So am I just my brain? Well, it's not for me to answer for you. For me, that is not how I have chosen to live my life. Despite a love of science and the brain, Uh, In particular, I do not believe that science has the answers to these hard questions. For me, those answers are found in the historical evidence of the Bible and the life of Jesus Christ. You will have to answer this and other questions for yourself. If the materialist is right, there is no rush. But if the Bible is right, then this will be the most important decision you ever make. So I would urge you to examine the evidence for yourself as carefully as you can. Let's pray. Father God, we marvel at your power uh, for the creation that you have uh, brought uh, into order uh, for the lives that you have made. Father, we are amazed that you know all about us. uh, You know all of those things that we hide uh, from others, and yet you love us and you want to know us. So we thank you that in Jesus we can know you perfectly uh, and know your forgiveness and a life that will never end. We ask this in your name. Amen.